I'm Elizabeth Slattery. And I'm Tiffany Bates. And welcome to SCOTUS 101, where we break down what's happening at the Supreme Court, what the justices are up to, and other things related to our favorite branch of government. This week, we're talking about new cert grants and opinions, and when the government changes its litigation position. And we'll interview former assistant to the Solicitor General, Ginger Anders. So what is happening at SCOTUS this week? Well... The court granted cert in two new cases, and we're pretty excited about them. Yeah, listeners should have, uh, we should have recorded our conversation when I I called (laughs) Elizabeth to yell about the new grants, because they were so exciting. (laughs) So first up is Gundy versus United States. The court limited the question presented to whether Congress's delegation of authority to the Attorney General to issue regulations under the Sex Offender Registration and Notification Act violates the non-delegation doctrine. I know that must sound pretty dry, but it's, it's actually very exciting case. So Congress did not determine the applicability of SORNA, that's the Sex Offender Registration and Notification Act, uh, to individuals who were convicted of a sex offense before the law was passed. Instead, Congress delegated that determination to the Attorney General. So was that delegation permissible? Well, going back to a 1928 case, J.W. Hampton Jr. and Company versus United States, the Supreme Court said that Congress can delegate some of its authority to uh, to a person or authorized body, as long as there was some sort of intelligible principle. And the last time the court has invalidated an act of Congress on non-delegation grounds was in 1935 in two cases involving New Deal era regulations. So these were the Panama Refining Company and Schechter Poultry cases. Uh, these were uh, looking at regulations of the petroleum and poultry industries under the National Industrial Recovery Act. So Justice Benjamin Cardozo called the uh, the Schechter poultry, the regulations there, um, which is often called the, the sick chicken case. I think most con law students are familiar with it. He called the, uh, the delegation unconfined and vagrant and a delegation running riot. Now, uh, Chief Justice Charles Evan Hughes wrote both majority opinions in those cases. And in Panama Refining Company, he explained, the question is not the intrinsic importance of the particular statute before us, but of the constitutional processes of legislation, which are an essential part of our system of government. Now, that sounds like something Justice Neil Gorsuch might say, doesn't it? Yeah, it does. And in fact, he had some things to say about the non-delegation doctrine and this very provision that the the court is going to look at in the Gundy case in a, a 2011 case at the Tenth Circuit, United States versus Nichols. He wrote, there's ample evidence that the framers of the Constitution thought the compartmentalization of legislative power, not just a tool of good government or necessary to protect the authority of Congress from encroachment by the executive, but essential to the preservation of the people's liberty. So he said, unlike the sick chicken case of the 1930s, uh, it it doesn't, uh, the SORNA doesn't just grant some alphabet soup agency the power to write rules about the chicken trade. It invests in the nation's chief prosecutor the authority to devise a criminal code governing a half million people. So a few of the other justices have expressed an interest in reviving the non-delegation doctrine, including Justice Thomas in a 2015 decision uh, dealing with with Amtrak, whether it's a private entity or a governmental one. He wrote a concurrence saying that uh, the court's uh, basically failure to to use the non-delegation doctrine had sanctioned the growth of the administrative state. And in a 2012 decision, Reynolds versus United States, which actually dealt with SORNA as well, Justices Scalia and Ginsburg dissented and and they had concerns about the act's delegation of authority to the attorney general. Yeah, and I'll I'll mention I just looked at the um, 
the brief in opposition that from the government um, saying the court shouldn't take this case. And they there's like a three-page string site. <laughs> they just cited all the non-delegation cases that the court has denied. Um since the since the thirties, so I thought that was that was just kind of funny. But they are they took the case. They're interested in it, so they're yeah. ignoring all of those other instances. <laughs> I'm I'm interested to find out why exactly the court decided now was the time to take uh, take this case. Yeah. But I think it's a good thing. Um, so next up is Nick versus Township of Scott. This was a case brought by our friends at the Pacific Legal Foundation. Their second grant um, this term. Um, So this case is about Pennsylvania's graveyard law. So this town has a local ordinance that allows the government to um, basically trespass on your property if they suspect it's home to old burial sites. Uh, So the ordinance says that if you have old burial sites or if you're suspected of having them on your property, you have to open up your property to the public day or night. It's like an (laughs) easement. Um, And if you don't, you face some hefty fines. So in this case, uh, Ms. Nick had 90 acres of rural land on which she lives. And because there are some rocks on the property, some people claimed it was an ancient burial ground, although there was um, uh, no other indications of this. And Ms. Nick was obviously not happy about being forced to let people on her land. (laughs) Um, The ability to exclude people is a very basic uh, tenant of property law. I think you probably learned that on your first day of of law school. Um, So she sued in state court but got thrown out on procedural grounds. So then she tried her hand in federal court. um, But the court held that under a 1985 decision, Williamson County Regional Planning Commission versus Hamilton Bank, a property owner must exhaust state court remedies before suing for an unconstitutional taking in federal court. So the federal court here refused to reach the taking claim. Um, So the court decided to take this case and limited the question presented to whether they should reconsider um, the part of Williamson County that um, demands that a a property owner go through all the state court remedies before um, a federal court can address the the claims. Now, PLF argues that Williamson County has caused more injustice and conflict in federal takings litigation than any other takings principle. Now, the lawyer at Pacific Legal Foundation, Dave Bremer, he just argued the Minnesota voters case uh, earlier in February. And I would point out that so that was a new area of the law for him to learn, I think, because I, I've heard he is really the god of Williamson County. And so I think uh, Ms. Nick is in good hands with uh, with with Dave representing her at the Supreme Court. Uh, the court also issued a couple opinions this week. Yeah. So first up, U.S. Bank N.A. versus Lakeridge. And this was a an opinion written by Justice Kagan. And I saw on Twitter, I think it might have been Kevin Daly of The Daily Caller. He tweeted that, that Kagan at some point called this case a case only an appellate judge could love. Which and is so true. I have to agree. So the issue is whether a bankruptcy court's dis- determination of a highly factual question of mixed law and fact should be reviewed for clear error or whether it gets de novo review. So the Supreme Court affirmed the Ninth Circuit. 
yes, you heard that right, affirm the Ninth Circuit, not something you hear every day, uh, saying the standard of review for a mixed question of law, in fact, depends on whether answering it entails primarily legal or factual work. So according to Kagan's majority opinion, this was about a factual, as factual sounding as any mixed question gets. Such an inquiry primarily belongs in the court that has presided over the presentation of evidence that has heard all the witnesses and that has both the closest and deepest understanding of the record. And here that was the bankruptcy court. So I'm going to leave it at that. <laughs> the court also decided an original jurisdiction case, Texas versus New Mexico, um, which is another water dispute. So Justice Gorsuch wrote the opinion for a unanimous court holding that the United States may, as an intervener, assert essentially the same claims as Texas in Texas's dispute against New Mexico um, when they sued uh, New Mexico for a violation of the Rio Grande Compact. So the Rio Grande Compact of 1939 requires Colorado to deliver water to New Mexico, which in turn must deliver water to the Elephant Butte Reservoir. Um, and that reservoir p- plays a central role in fulfilling the United States um, obligation to supply water um, under a 1906 treaty with Mexico, as well as, as, well as some other um, agreements with downstream water districts. So Texas sued New Mexico, claiming a violation of the compact by allowing downstream New Mexico users to siphon off water below the reservoir, um, which they say is inconsistent with the downstream contracts. And the United States intervened and filed a complaint that mirrored Texas's claims, Um, The court appointed a special master, as it often does in these sorts of cases, and he filed a report recommending that the uh, U.S. uh, complaint be dismissed, in part because the compact didn't confer the federal government the power to enforce its terms. Um, But the court held that the U.S. may pursue its compact claims, um, noting that the court, using its unique authority to mold original actions, has sometimes permitted the federal government to participate in compact suits to defend distinctively federal interest. Um, they did not decide, however, whether the U.S. could initiate such litigation um, to force a state to perform its obligations under the compact on its own. Um, in in this case, they uh, ass- uh you know, made their their complaint in an existing action brought by Texas. So um, that broader question is left for another day. So next, we're going to talk about when the government, the federal government, changes its position in in cases. So at the recent oral argument for Janus, which is the public sector unions case, Justice Sonia Sotomayor brought up the fact that the Trump administration has changed the government's position in that case. Uh, And it was kind of a laugh line inside of the courtroom, and she wanted to know how many times this has happened this term. So Solicitor General Noel Francisco responded, in three cases so far. (laughs) So uh, uh, oftentimes when an administration changes the federal government's position, when it's writing this in a brief, it'll say something like, upon further reflection, and it's a joke, you know, in in. SCOTUS circles that this means upon further election. Uh, So the three cases that that I think uh, General Francisco was referring to are the Houston case, which is the Ohio voter roll cleanup case. And I believe in that oral argument, Justice Sotomayor asked uh, the Solicitor General about 
the government having changed its position there. The Janus case, and then um, Tiffany, what's the third one? Yeah, um, that would be Lucia, where the government changed its position on the status of administrative law judges. Um, but you know, and this is not completely uncommon. Administrations uh, changing positions. It's happened in the past. Um, and I think it was Justice Scalia that uh, gave then Solicitor General Don Verrilli a pretty hard time about the government changing its position in in Kiobel, Ke- uh, yeah, um, which is about the Alien Tort Statute. Um, I think I remember Scalia asking Verrilli, "Well, why should we believe you and not your predecessors?" <laughs> and Verrilli said something like, um, "Well, because we think we're persuasive," and that seemed to. Um, appease Scalia for the moment. So uh, law professor Josh Blackman has an article looking at the history of when new administrations change the federal government's position. So we'll we'll tweet that out from the SCOTUS 101 account. And uh, we'll be uh, keeping a tally of any future cases where the administration changes its position. Indeed. Uh, we recently spoke with a lawyer who had the opportunity to work for not one, not two, but all three of the current female Supreme Court justices. Ginger Anders is a partner at Munger, Tolls & Olson and a former assistant to the Solicitor General. Welcome to SCOTUS 101, Ginger. Thank you. Thanks for having me. So I loved the article that Bloomberg Law ran about you and four other ladies, from, uh, formerly from the Solicitor General's office, including N- Nicole Saharsky, who we interviewed last fall. So tell us a little bit about these relationships. Sure. Um, so the, the SG's office is a really collegial place. We had um, 16 attorneys total in the line attorney level, and we just became really close because when you're arguing in front of the court all the time, you're writing these briefs all the time, you just, um, you know, it's sort of a trial by fire. And so um, you develop these close relationships and you learn to help each other with your cases and that kind of thing. So when we all started coming out of the office, I think we really wanted to keep up that relationship and, um, you know, try to find ways to work together if we can, uh, which might be if one of us has a uh, case where we're representing a party, maybe some of the others can do amicus briefs and, you know, we'll sort of think of each other that way and hopefully refer cases in the future. And, um, you know, we just sort of keep up the friendships, meet all the time, talk about issues um, that we're facing in our new law firms, you know, new practices. Um, it's kind of interesting. We're all sort of going into private practice around the same time. And so uh, we can compare notes. That's wonderful. Too. Ladies helping ladies. Yeah. <laughs> um, so you've argued 18 cases before the Supreme Court. What's the most memorable argument? Um, well, they're all memorable in a way because they're also, um, you know, it's it's such a, you know, big endeavor, right? You get nervous. Yeah. You, you want to do your best uh, for your for your client, in this case, the government. Um, but I ended up doing a lot of patent cases. And those actually were really rewarding because they didn't, um, the, they don't sort of fall along ideological lines. You know, I think mm-hmm. the justices came to them with sort of a fresher um, uh, view. You know, they, they were sort of open to hearing all of the parties' arguments. They didn't have a preconceived notion. So I had one that was about like standards of review. Um, when a district court construes a patent claim, how should the court of appeals review that? So you know, it wasn't the most sort of most like you know, <laughs> exciting, you know, real world issue. But um, it was important to the patent bar, and um, it, it felt like one in which we were able to help the court sort of work through the issues and sort of you know go through and say, here are the facts in the case, here are what the here's what the court did, and we can help you apply this new standard that we're proposing uh, for this. And so it, it was rewarding as an advocate because it felt like they were actually, um, you know, I was actually able to sort of help them work through it, and, and they were sort of looking to the, all of the lawyers in the case for that. Yeah, that's great. Yeah. 
So you clerked for Justice Sonia Sotomayor when she was on the appeals court. Tell us what it was like working for her. It was great. She's a really warm person. Um, and so she has a very close relationship with her clerks. Um, and it, it, so it was fun to be in New York. You know, we would go to Chinatown for lunch a lot. We would, <laughs> um, you know, just talk about each other's lives. Um, she sometimes, I think, has done marathons with her clerks. Oh, wow. Um, yeah. Wow, we didn't know that. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, she didn't that year, which was probably good for me because I was totally <laughs> flamed out. Um, but, you know, she's just really interested in our lives. And, um, you know, I, I'm a violinist. I would have performances she would come to hear and things like that. Oh, so that's wonderful. It was, yeah, it was a close relationship, that's which is really sweet. nice. Um, then you went on to clerk for Justice Ginsburg. Can you tell us something um, about RBG that our listeners may not already know? Um, so she is also really close with her clerks, um, sort of in a quieter way, I think, than Justice Sotomayor. But um, her husband, uh, Marty, would make a birthday cake for each um, clerk. You know, and we'd sit That's around her table and we'd eat, and each each one was sort of a different flavor. <laughs> we'd get the recipes. And by the end of the clerkship, you know, you'd have these like four amazing recipes uh, for, for cakes. But you know, she was she was also she was a very you know tough boss. She was a demanding boss, I think, rightfully so. Um, but at the same time, there was this sort of warmth about her. Um, I got married during the clerkship, and she, you know, threw a party um, at the clerk's happy hour. So you know, she's just a really uh, sweet person. So can I ask what kind of cake did you get for your birthday? I think it was a ginger molasses that I oh. still have the recipe for. It was really good. How appropriate. <laughs> so you also worked for Justice Kagan when she was the Solicitor General. So what's it like appearing? before three former bosses. <laughs> It is. It is really. It was really nice, um, especially yeah. in my first few arguments. I think it was nice um, to sort of be sitting there, and you know, the council table is really close to the bench, and mm-hmm. so when they would come out, sometimes Justice Ginsburg would sort of, you know, give me a little eyebrow raise, <laughs> a little nod, <laughs> oh, which was sweet. really nice yeah. because, yeah, it made it feel like you know there was someone who, at least on a personal level, was pulling for me, even <laughs> if she didn't agree with the position. <laughs> yeah, um, but it, it it's nice to know some of them well because you sort of you start to understand how they think and what kinds mm-hmm. of questions they may be asking. And so, um, you know, maybe you can predict where they're going to be coming from a little bit, which is nice substantively. As well. Yeah. Um, you talked before about Don Verrilli being one of your greatest legal mentors. Can you tell us about some of your other mentors? Sure. Um, so in addition to Don, I think um, one that stands out is the first judge I clerked for, who is um, uh, Jerry Lynch on the Southern District of New York. He's now on the Second Circuit. But um you know, that was a great clerkship to have because, you know, you'd see everything that happened in the trial court and come back and he would just explain, you know, everything that he thought had happened and how he thought the lawyers had done. Um, so it was great right after law school to, you know, really have someone's, um, you know, just t- teaching you, um, you know, what they saw um, in the courtroom. And of course, he himself had been a, you know, U.S. attorney for many years and, and eventually the chief of the criminal division in SDNY. And so, you know, he had so much experience mm-hmm. in the courtroom. Um, and he also, you know, he liked to say to us that good enough for government work means the very best. And so I think I sort of <laughs> learned from him, like, you know, the idea that going into government and doing public service was something that was really important for a lawyer to do. And so, you know, I eventually I thought that eventually I would like to go into DOJ in some right. capacity. Um, and eventually that happened. So. so one final question, something we ask all of our guests here at SCOTUS 101. If you could have a conversation with any Supreme Court justice, living or dead, who would you pick and what would you talk about? Gosh, this is kind of a tough question. (laughs) 
So I think I would probably pick Thurgood Marshall. And I think what I find really interesting about him was all the different roles that he played um, mm-hmm. throughout his career. You know, obviously there's the civil rights litigation, the impact litigation. Um, but then going from that to being a judge and then to being a solicitor general and then to being a justice, um, I'd be interested in how he saw those different roles and, you know, which one he liked the best. And especially going from doing sort of nationwide impact litigation to being a judge, you know, is there, um, uh, you know, how, how did he view other people who came up after him doing impact litigation? You know, did he, did he agree with their strategies? Would he have done it differently? Um, you know, did he feel like it was a little bit less exciting to be a judge? Those are questions <laughs> I'd want to ask. <laughs> well, that would be certainly an interesting conversation. Well, thank you so much for joining us. Absolutely. Thank you for having me. We'll wrap up with a round of Supreme Trivia where I'm going to try to stump Elizabeth. Are you ready? Bring it on. Yeah, I think these are some hard questions. Uh-oh. Yeah, but I'm excited about them. Okay, <laughs> number one. Who is the first justice to hire a female law clerk? I'm going to say I'm going to say Brandeis. No, it was Justice Douglas. He hired oh. Lucille Lohman for the 1944 term. And wasn't he the one that had kind of an interesting personal life? A lot of women in his personal life. <laughs> I don't know. I don't remember. We'll look it up. I'm sure she would hi- was hired on her merits. Yes. Um, next question. Under Chief Justice John Jay, the justices wore robes with what color facing? What's facing? Like the the, the front? front? Like the whole front of it? Yeah, I'm not. Mm. I'm not sure if it was the whole thing or just like part of it. I assume it was part of it. Red? Yes. Ooh. Um, So it was sort of similar, apparently, to robes worn by English judges. Um, But since at least 1800, um, they've traditionally worn black. And Chief Justice Rehnquist had the, was it yellow stripes? Yeah. Which is some Um, sort of a nod to English judges as well, I believe. Yeah, I think that's right. Um, Okay, next question. When a new justice takes the oath of office at the court, whose chair does he sit in during the ceremony? He sits in a chair when he's taking the oath? No, well, during, I I think he stands when he actually takes the oath, but in another part of the ceremony, he he sits in a famous chair. Oh, a famous chair. Hmm. I don't know. Is it like... John Marshall's chair. Yeah, it's oh. John Marshall's chair. Um, so he sits there while the AG, um, traditionally the AG, reads the the nomination letter. But I think I think Rod Rosenstein, the deputy AG, um, read the letter for Gorsuch. But I could well, have that wrong. I think because Attorney General Sessions hadn't been confirmed yet, right? Or had he been? Yeah. Hmm. We'll have to do some remember. research and get back to you on that. I can't remember. <laughs> okay. So, next question. We all know that the justices sit on the uh, where the justices sit on the bench is determined by seniority. So, which justice is the only justice to sit in every single chair on the bench? Oh, I remember reading this, um, but I don't remember who it. I mean, it would have been somebody who was chief justice. Mm-hmm. Uh, it wasn't. Either the current or the last one. It was it was like the middle of the 20th century, wasn't it? So it was Justice Harlan Stone. 
Um, he was the only justice to sit in every chair. So he moved from being the most junior justice to the most senior associate justice, and then he was appointed chief justice. Quite a promotion. Yeah. Okay, last question. Traditionally, what did every Supreme Court advocate have to wear when appearing before the court? Oh, a morning coat. Yes, morning suit or morning, morning clothes. Suit. Yes. Um, so today, pretty much only government lawyers continue to wear morning clothes, um, and everyone else pretty much wears a normal dark-colored suit. But I have to say, the first time um, I went to oral argument at the court, <laughs> I I saw someone wearing a morning suit, and I was like, who is this goofball? Like, he looks so silly. And it, you know, turns out it was the SG. Um, <laughs> Well, I think you did a, a good job. I think there was those were, were some hard, but those questions. were those were good questions. Yeah. So good job. All right. Well, thanks for listening to SCOTUS 101. Be sure to subscribe on iTunes or wherever you listen to your podcasts, and please leave us a rating if you enjoy listening. Please also follow us on Twitter at SCOTUS 101, and you can email us at SCOTUS 101 at heritage.org with questions, comments, or ideas for future episodes. You've been listening to SCOTUS 101, executive produced by Elizabeth Slattery and Tiffany Bates. Sound designed by Michael Gooden, Lauren Evans, and Thalia Rampersat. For more information, visit heritage.org.